call it. Call it, yes. For what? Just call it. Welcome to episode 130 of Call It Friend, or the podcast where two friends watch two films decided by the flip of a coin. This week, myself and DJ Richie and my co-host Donica Tiernan watched two films about the Japanese mafia, 1974's The Yakuza and 1993's Sonatine. As always, the podcast contains spoilers for the films right from the start. Check out JustWatch.com for streaming and rental options in your region. You can find us on Instagram at Call Friend or Podcast. Drop us a line there if any feedback or recommendations. Also, find us on Letterboxd, both of us this time, at AndyCIF pod and donica is at donica he got his own name that's mental peace yeah you know what the public's not ready for that knowledge yeah. i just you dropped saw it. you did you solved it yeah yeah but they're just it not turns ready out, for it. it turns out jfk's head just did that on its own <laughs> declassify the start of this yeah. podcast in 25 years yeah well it's come uh, back to yeah, well, I didn't. Uh, but you know what the thing is? I would still, I'd still maybe fancy. JFK. No, I'd still <laughs> maybe fancy rewatching that movie. I it's would. probably worth watching. I told you not that long ago, I watched the the follow up film that Oliver Stone made, and it was like, yeah, yeah I just acquired a copy of that. Of, you can't see some of the insanity creeping back in, but yeah, yeah. Anyway, have you ever seen Nixon? Yes. Like you could fairly, it, by the modern standard, you could fairly uh, level accusations of homophobia at, at uh, Oliver right, Stone's yeah, I feet. remember you saying about this. It's wild to see it because, so Bob Hoskins plays, um, what's his chops, the head of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover. And it's, it's only a small scene near the start of the movie, but he, he, uh, Nixon phones him and he's relaxing by a pool with some uh, dude. And then he calls over the waiter, who's this like Venezuelan guy dressed in a thong, and he asks him to feed him a grape and then he smacks him on the ass and tells him to wait up in his room. Like it's, the this the sinister way people imagined homosexuals to be, you know, in you know conspiracy theories and cabals, like it's just there on the screen. No attempt at subtlety. It's mental. It's just, I I guarantee you, if you watched it, and the movie itself is pretty good, but that scene is like I don't know. It's all it's like the modern cinematic equivalent for homosexuals of you know the the old British propaganda cartoons of depicting. Irish people as nearly simian, you know, those really accurate cartoons. Yeah, what's the problem? Indeed, yeah, yeah. So, did you watch anything? Yeah, I watched two things. Go for it. Tell me one. So, I guess I'll start with what was probably my favorite film of the week, and that is Robert Wise's 1971 adaptation of the 1969 Michael Crichton novel, The Andromeda Strain. Nice. Love this movie. The basic plot outline is that the US government is sending satellites into space to try and scoop up alien life. When one such satellite crash lands in Piedmont, New Mexico, all the inhabitants of the small town die mysteriously. As a result, four of the USA's best scientists are tasked with experimenting on the alien sample in order to save humanity. When I, I remember I watched this not long after uh, 28 Days Later came out, and I thought, ah, oh, one definitely influenced the other. And I, 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 you didn't <laughs> I wonder which so? one it was. No. Uh, well, there we I go. wonder which one came first. Indeed, yeah. But no, just that 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 I remember the footage of the being really impressed with the footage of the the town with everybody. Oh dead right, you mean of yeah, like yeah. London and Twenty Eight Days Later? Yeah, 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 yeah. I just thought that I remember. I, I remember looking at it, going, I didn't think they did stiff. They they pulled off things like this so well back in the seventies. I just thought it it looked really really good. I think that's because of Robert Wise. I mean, we've only talked about him mm. 
West Side from, Story. Yeah, from West Side Story, which is about as opposite a film as you could make from from this one. But yeah, I'm not a big fan. The thing that the thing that's mental about this film for me is it's basically two hours of middle aged scientists doing rigorous and painstaking experiments, mm. and like I was completely glued to the screen for the entire runtime. Yeah, and you see so many comments of people just going, "It's boring, it's boring, it's boring." I've seen a lot of that. Like if you go on uh, Letterbox and stuff, there's a lot of people just saying, "Like you know, there's nothing happens." But I realized I'd be quite happy just watching a film that's scientists doing experiments for two hours. You should watch Michael Crichton has another film. I think he might have uh, directed this one actually. It's called Coma. Have you ever heard of Coma? Yeah, I had a quick look at Michael Crichton's films because it's a weird thing that from like. The, about the seven early seventies to about like the mid eighties or something, he was making films, and then he, yeah, yeah, and he just he went. I guess he went back to the books. Yeah, but uh, so coma is um, it's, it's <laughs> there's definitely parts of it that are just plain silly, but coma is like so. There's it's just in a hospital, and patients that slip into comas are like just dying in a certain way. All of them. It seems like a fixed thing. And uh, there is a conspiracy or something or other going on in the hospital, and this uh, female doctor tries to uncover it. It's I think it's really it's 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 quite a fun movie. Um, sinister overtones, but I think he because let's see what else has he got? Westworld, uh, the uh, Andromeda Strain, Jurassic Park. But there's there's other ones, aren't there? Yeah, things that he wrote. Like it's all he just did Congo, stuff. Disclosure. Oh, oh, he did Disclosure. Yeah, I think he even directed Disclosure, maybe. That's not very Crichton, is it? Well, it's just a, a sexy aspect of him. He created ER as well. He he created ER? Yeah, like the actual concept, not even just the TV show. Like he made the Oh, first wow. Yeah, hospitals room. needed those. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, Andromeda Strain is... Uh, Andromeda Strain, from, solid, Jurassic Park's solid film. Thing. The uh, effects are by Douglas Trumbull, who's probably best known for 2001 A Space Odyssey and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Silent and running. it's uh, it's all analog. It's all analog tech, but it holds up surprisingly well. The script doesn't talk down to the audience. It assumes that the viewer is smart enough to follow what's going on, and there's none of the in English dark tropes that have started to become or have been very common for the the last thirty years. And there's that five minute sequence. No spoilers, but there's a five minute sequence near the end of the film, which is one of the most tense I can remember. I can't even remember what you're talking about. I must go check this out again. When when did you last watch it? Uh, certainly would have been I would have been in Barcelona. Yeah, I because I, I remember watching it in my first apartment over here. But that, I mean that's going back six or seven years now. Yeah. It's been a long while. I remember I saw it was on TV. The first time I watched it was soon enough after twenty eight days later. And I think I actually rented it specifically because I wanted to check out more apocalypse movies. Ridley and Tony Scott produced a TV miniseries of the book back in two thousand and eight, but apparently it's shite. Which is a shame because a well-made update would be cool. Yeah, I suppose that's what people think of The Last of Us uh, as. How much? But, but I was thinking about The Last of Us the other day because all the lists of best shows of the year are coming out. How did you f- find it in the end? I remember not being particularly keen on Joel walking through the uh, Firefly Hospital at the end. I just like compared mm. to the game. It just I don't know. It looked a bit. It looked a bit cheap and shitty to me. I just mm. I wasn't a, like there were elements that I liked. I can I remember I kind of liked what they did with David in the the episode before that, but overall I just I still I prefer the game. And there there's like yeah, a remastered the version. There's a remastered version of um Last of Us Part 2 coming out early next year. 
So there'll be like a kind of fully remastered part one and two that you could play all the way through mm. short enough. And uh, I think that's a far superior experience than anything that Craig Mazin's going to come up with, unfortunately. Yeah, you see, that's, I mean, it's, I mean, it's just to do with the popularity of the intellectual property, obviously. But, and the thing is, like, The Last of Us is of such a high standard in every estimation. But now you see, it's impossible for me to tell this exactly because I have played the game. But I felt there was something very game-like about the show. Maybe that was just my influence from it, but like I don't know, it, it it did seem like an adaptation of something rather than the actual thing. Do you know what I mean? It depends on the episode because yeah, a lot of it, a, a lot of the criticism of it was that there, you know, there were very few zombies and they weren't as dangerous as they would be. Like mm. you know, they they it's hard to, to have that scale or that budget to keep like showing all the zombies because they made it look like you could just go out to the middle of nowhere and you'd be absolutely fine and nothing bad would happen, but. I think ultimately the strongest thing that they did was that they had the the episode with uh, Bill, like Bill's Town episode. I think with that, yeah, thing, that yeah, whole, that was great. That whole episode, which is you know, is their own writing, is something completely different to the show. Was the strongest part in the end. Yeah, I don't know. I was just, I suppose it's because of recent, recently watching, you know, <laughs> the good old days of recently watching like Deadwood and the Shield, and they just seem like such complete encompass like those are the art form of tv and yeah, maybe uh, you're right maybe this is too tied to the game they probably should have like if they'd that. had a bit more freedom it would have been better but that, i think that's the problem is they got like the creator of the game was you know was one of the co-creators of the show and i've called, read uh, what happens Neil in Trumpman. i've read what happens in last of us part two i don't think audiences are going to take very kindly to that i really don't no, but they might. I mean, they're gonna. They said they're splitting the second game into two seasons of TV. So we'll see what happens. And also, on a TV show, you can do a lot of things that you would, are perhaps harder to do when you're controlling characters in a game. So they might mm -hmm. mess with it. Yeah, because the the way the timeline works in the game. No spoilers, but there's a massive, shocking narrative reveal very early on, and in, in the yes, that's game. what I'm referring to. I, yeah, I know, I know. I'm just, I'm just emphasizing that for anyone listening who's not played the game. But right, yeah, yeah and it's, by it's the way, very early on, and yeah, it yeah. created basically a huge backlash. Yeah, um, I, I only heard about this recently. A lot of people yeah. really didn't like that. Well, the game came out sort of May or June. It was summer 2020 during like lockdown. Mm. And um, a lot of people had a lot of spare time <laughs> and people were absolutely raging after playing the game because, you know, well, OK, I won't no further. I'm not going to no spoilers on this. No, you, we don't need to. But three years, more than three years ago. Where did you stand on it? Did you like it? Yeah, yeah, I was a huge fan. I think I played. I talked about the game on. No, the, no, on not here, the game but, specifically. Well, you did, but that incident. What did I? I would. I. I hadn't played the game when that happened, so I was immediately slightly suspicious of the people that were kind of shouting it out. And when I actually played the game, I was like, "Oh no, it makes perfect sense." Like I'm fully mm. on board with the choice of the uh, makers of the game. I yeah. think it works absolutely fine. I can't really go into it much more without saying. I mean, it's just. It's like it's. What oh, the way the the second game functions is it's like trying to help you to build empathy with your enemy. That's the idea. Yeah, and I yeah, think yeah. it worked. It worked for me anyway. And it's a uniquely. Th it, I don't think you could do that in any other art form. No, which I think because it makes you have it, to it makes control, it quite like, special. There's a there's a difference between spending time and watching someone that you don't like who's done something horrible, and then mm. having to actually control that person is completely different. So yeah.
Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. so they it's going to be completely different when they finally get the TV show the second season up and running. Wow, crisp uh, new up to date. Uh, hey, that is on... that's, that is up to date because it's not even happened yet. So there you go. Yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose it's if for end of TV list, we'll be giving our own of those shortly enough. Even though I, uh, as regards new stuff coming out this year, I've managed to watch. <laughs> not I, this is my lowest rate of watching new things coming out maybe of my entire life i'm trying to what i've done this week and what i'm going to try to do going forward is to watch something new and something old and something borrowed and something blue i watched plenty i watched plenty of blue stuff don't worry and it's all borrowed it's all borrowed from the internet (laughs) but uh yeah it's one old one new that's how i work now all right i'll 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 tell you a thing uh i watched um well, I'll give you I'll give you two because I can, one one of them you talked about already, and then you can say your second thing. So I watched the film that you uh, recommended last the week. Bottoms. B- Bottoms. Yes. What you told me about the film could not have quite prepared me for it because say anybody wants to the details of what this is about, go listen to last week's podcast. But it is daft beyond. I couldn't believe how fucking daft it is, and I really <laughs> liked it. Like it made me laugh a yeah. lot. But it is completely batshit. Like, it's a really kind of crazy movie. I think it's when you see one of the football players. Maybe I mentioned that last week, but when you're, they're in the classroom and one of the football players is, like, in a cage at the back of the room. It yeah, really yeah. Sets the Little tone. things like, like that. Oh, shit. Yeah, or, or, like, just the sudden bursts of violence, which can go... <laughs> I can be go either way on that, but, like, the fight club scenes where they're actually... <laughs> are very, very funny, actually. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and just the... You never see lesbians in that sleazy position. It's, it's yeah, refreshing. Yeah, I know. I like that. It's, yeah, they're the whole reason that they're doing it is just because they're, you know, like trying to get laid. Um. So yeah, I was a I was a big fan of that. And the other thing I watched, which so this year has seen a spate of um bio documentaries come out on uh, streaming services. Um. I you you made little of me earlier in the year for watching uh, the David Beckham one. Which I really enjoyed, oh and a lot of other people really did too. Actually, yeah, yeah, but people like Coldplay and vote for the Nazis. I may have oh. even said that exact same thing last time. Very, very nice super hands. Yeah, get a new reference, you dumbass. Anyway, well, you've definitely got more references than David Beckham. <laughs> no. He's a bit of a dumbass. Oh, is he? Okay, good. <laughs> but he's a great footballer. Uh, but anyway, no, that documentary is really, really good, actually. And um, I don't know. There's something. I don't know. They do bring something interesting to the table because the the thing is. You're so used to seeing people moan about being fucking famous, but like they are fully engaged with the, they want to stay famous and stay relevant and they, they do their own thing. They, they, I don't know. It's it's interesting. I know it sounds daft the way I'm putting that, but trust my taste on the thing that it is actually an interesting portrait because they're likable also. That's the thing. They're not Kardashian dickheads. They're both quite likable, but you know, this is the way they've chosen to live their life. It's unusual. But then the opposite becomes true when you're watching. So I I didn't watch all of this. My wife had it on. I watched a few minutes of it. Um, the uh, Robbie Williams one, and uh, the exact opposite thing happens with the Robbie Williams one. Because I would come would have come into that with a bit of goodwill for old Robbie, but you very quickly learn he's just a, he's just a total dickhead. Yeah, <laughs> just a complete. Most you know the like you know the 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 interview footage. So the way all of these tend to run is. People watch footage of themselves, archive footage, and comment on it. <laughs> but like, look, like Roy Keane contributes to the Beckham one. Gary Neville, heaps of people, very famous people. Yapstam is in it. Van Nistelrooy, uh, <laughs> like 
uh, Alex Ferguson. So it's like, but nobody is there to contribute for Robbie Williams. He's just none of the take that boys or anything. And the B-roll interview footage that they'll cut to uh, with him, he's in his underpants in bed. Respect. Like the Eddie Vedder interview interviews from the 1990s. Like it's like it's embarrassing. It's, It's oh, it's terribly cringe. I mean, there's very revealing stuff in it where, he, you know, this guy was definitely a drug addict and not having a good time. But anyway, I digress. The best of all of these that has come out this year has just <laughs> come out on Amazon Prime. It's a Ronnie, Sullivan, Ronnie O'Sullivan, The Edge of Everything. Now, you've you've already derided me off microphone back when I was telling you who really killed JFK at the start of this episode about watching a documentary about a snooker player. But anybody out there who's been paying attention at all, and I do enjoy watching snooker, I always have, but Ronnie O'Sullivan is like a character, like one of the greatest characters in, in sporting history. And you can say whatever you like about, about Snooker, but he is really an interesting person. He's got like real mental health struggles, which he deals with sort of deals with sort of head on. And there's bits about alcoholism in it. There's, I don't know, like him trying to deal with the fact that he's a, like maybe probably the best person ever to play his sport, but B, has such a disposition that he convinces himself he's not interested in it and wants to quit at least once a year. And he, the access that they have in this is so full on that you really do get a genuine portrait of, or like I cried a couple of times during it. It's, it is quite something, but it's also, he's really funny, like a genuinely very funny person, but he's funny about the darkest shit ever. <laughs> um, So it's, I don't know. I found it a really, really compelling watch. I would interested in snooker or not i would really really recommend this to you i think you would get a lot out of it i think it's very good my only real memories of him are like him playing with his wrong hand like taking oh the yeah piss the ambidextrous stuff yeah yeah. But, yeah but he was doing it to take the piss but he's the, he talks a little bit about that in the he said yeah everyone hated him for it but he started basically learning it in the off season and he was he wanted to keep up practicing it because it was a useful sort of thing to have but he says he wasn't quite he wasn't quite he wasn't doing it to make fun of people he was doing it because it was the skill he'd learned and he wanted to like you know use it but he says fair enough if people thought of it like that you know uh yeah i would really give that a high high recommend and what else you've been watching i also watched todd haynes's new film may december oh i really want to see this this is based on the case of mary Kay letourneau who was a 35 year old school teacher who began a sexual relationship with yeah and eventually married her 13 year old pupil I think and she had taught two kids him. by him. Yeah, yeah. I think they had more. They had well, in in the case of the film, they have three kids. But like in the in uh, real life, she taught him in like second and fifth grade, and then mm. they got together when he was thirteen, which is horrifying. She just died, actually. The uh, real lady, she died like about two years ago. But the film, the film stars Julianne Moore as Gracie, who twenty three years previously was caught having sex with thirteen year old Joe, played by Charles Melton in the pet shop where they both worked. Now in 2015, an actress called Elizabeth, played by Natalie Portman, is in town to shadow Gracie in order to portray her in an upcoming film. I've seen this listed as either a drama or a comedy drama, which is how it was I, entered I that into it. the Golden Globes. Mm. I think this is their strategy going forward uh, from studios is basically just the chance, the, you know, maximizing their chances of winning Golden Globes. I wouldn't call this film unfunny, it certainly has moments of levity, but they're mainly due to the score, which is like a, you know, anytime there's any extremely melodramatic thing happens, there's like a dun-dun-dun. 
and uh, which is usually quite funny. And the other laughs come from a, a type of nervous shock at some of the characters' actions, despicable actions. But uh, unsurprisingly, due to the subject matter, there are some really hard-hitting moments. Uh, all three leads have been nominated for Golden Globes, and there's a lot of buzz around Charles Melton potentially winning the Oscar. And uh, I think that's because it's not something we've seen much of before, or at least I haven't seen much before, which is a film with a lighter tone about a man who's stuck at this at the age he was when he was groomed and sexually abused. Um, so hmm. bas basically, the film is like two hours of people talking. Some of the impact of the film is what they say, but a lot of it is in the subtext. So if you're a fan of people talking, which you might be if you listen to this, I definitely recommend hmm. checking it out. It's, I think it's available on Netflix everywhere, I believe. Uh, I'm just here now looking at his... Um... Filmography. Yeah, he's uh, he's known from Riverdale. Apparently, he's uh, he was also in Bad Boys for Life. Oh no, I'm not talking about the actor. I'm talking about oh, Todd. Oh, Haynes. Talking about Todd Haynes. So they're talking mm. about old uh, Charlie Meltz. Todd Haynes has got a weird career in a way. He does. He did he's he started with Velvet Goldmine, and then he's got a few things. You know, he's got things like Carol that are sort of touching on gay themes or like closeted people. But then he also Far did from Dark. He, does that he, too. Yeah, and he also did Dark Waters. Yeah, which I recently which watched is, and you know, enjoyed. Which is completely different. He had his yeah. Bob Dylan film as well, where he had all the different actors playing which is playing Dylan. fucking wild. Um, but I, I'm I'm a fan of that. I'm not there. It's called. I think he's um, very talented. I think he makes good films. But I think the most interesting thing about this is the tone of it, because mm. it could. It, you've talked. You've talked. You know, previously quite a few times about you can't stand things which have no levity. This is an mm. extremely, like, the most serious topic you could have, in a way. And then there are a lot of moments of levity. Like, it is darkly funny. It's not as funny as, um, what's it called from last year, the Irish one? The Banshees of... Banshees of Inishirin. Inishirin, Ed Sheeran. Yeah, it's, it's not like, you know, because I saw so many comments last year of people going like, how, how is this a comedy? Whereas yeah, when I was I watching... I thought those were so funny. When I was watching, I mean, when I was watching that film, I said at the time, like, I was howling, I was cackling at oh, some yeah. of the moments. There's nothing like that here. There's not that type of humor here. But like it's here, such, it's, it's a lot more low-key. Like, I, I, I spoke to a f even a few people with that opinion, like, of Banshees of Inishir, and they were like, uh, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's funny in parts, but it's so miserable. And it Man, just, I thought, it's, I thought it was so funny. It says so much to the, like, Irish and Scottish yeah, yeah, disposition yeah, yeah. That well, I the just thought funniest thing ever. <laughs> plus, I thought the ending was so glorious because I was like, "That's the yeah, most yeah. Irish thing ever." When yeah. Colin Farrell goes up to Brendan Gleeson, goes, "Yeah, some things just go on forever," and I think that's good. <laughs> it's like Jesus <laughs> Christ! Oh my word! <laughs> like that. Like honestly, the amount of Irish family relationships that that's that ending <laughs> sums up. You will never know. Anyway, so. This was a weird week for the Toss films. What do you think? I mean... I liked one more than the other. Yeah, same, same. Okay, starting with the Yakuza, because that's how we did it. I mean, I <laughs> like this film overall, but I felt like it was less than the sum of its parts. Yeah, do you know, you know, it's a strange thing in this film, because I actually, the second it started, even though I, I, I immediately remembered my reaction to it when I watched it in Phenomena a few years back. Ironically, this film which features heaps of scenes of just people talking in rooms. This film gets boring when action starts. <laughs> Some of the action is so poorly shot. But it's weird. I, I found it like, 
every time something cool or interesting happens, it's followed up with something really clumsy or janky looking, especially in the action scenes, because they're they're complete mismatch Mm. of really interesting, well-framed shots and then like bizarrely clunky sequences. Like like something something cool will happen normally with the Japanese guy, and then Robert Mitchum will like walk through a paper wall. Holding two like mis <laughs> missized guns. They do a paper. They do a few paper walls. He does the whole. He, like he. Yeah. I mean, he's basically like Homer in the episode of The Simpsons. Where yeah, yeah. What I, I couldn't stop thinking about. Hundred percent. Just like mm. he, he just walks through walls all the time. But I love all the scenes of just people talking. I really enjoyed those. I can't quite say why. I think a lot of it is to do with there's a few very good performances in the film, but. So, like, I mean, I'll be going into the story of how this was put together um, in in a little bit. But the thing is, everybody in it is so archetypical. They're all very much representing something in this grand poetic realist story that Sidney Pollock and Robert Town decided they wanted to tell. Like, apparently, like, Paul Schrader will swear all day that the, t- the tone and the pace was, were very much injections that they put into it, and the look of the film, for that what matter. What do you think? Because I wondered, what do you think Schrader's version would have been like? Because I saw, what like, what, like, what, I mean, I, I mean, like you said, obviously tone is, is one of the parts there, but, mm. like, like I, I want to know what that script would have been like before time, you know, time, before time went to town on it. Who else said it was shit? Robert Aldrich. He said the script uh, yeah, was he horrendous did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. too. It so was, I mean, it was Robert Aldrich was the one who was basically responsible for it uh, getting rewritten. But the thing is, is that I think you can, you can. I'm, I'm not going to do it. You're not going to do it. But you can no. read Paul Schrader's script out there. Not. It's on, it's on the internet, and he says it was much more. It was just supposed to be a, a much more sort of violent, dirtier film, and that there were elements of you know the cross the the culture clashes in there. But really, what it was was just his attempt to make a Yakuza movie that could be accessible to American audiences. His idea was a very marketable script. And as it turned out, with a romance story in it, like all of that was very much calculated. And it was a very marketable script. It sold before they finished writing it. It sold for a lot of money back in the day. They like, they they, on spec, they got $300,000 between the two of them, which was unheard of back then. And pretty much it, 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 it kickstarted Schrader's career, he was able to leave behind his work as a film critic and basically get the breathing room to write something uh, to to write Taxi Driver, which is what he ended up doing. But I think I mentioned uh, at the time, like I, I I read his book that he published in 1972. I read it when I was at university because like, what is it I, called again? Transcendental, tra- yeah, transcendental style in film, and it's about yeah. like Ozu and Bresson and stuff like that. When I was going through, like I think I'd really started getting into film and i was going through the real sort of nerdy like mm. i'm going to get the the film book I, I got it out of like the university library and i was like i'm gonna get a film book called transcendental style and film because <laughs> then i can just leave that on a table in the cafe and everyone will know that i the know la- everything about cinema at this point the ladies will the ladies with doc martens will be lining up to to Hell suck your yeah. penis nice yeah. Uh, did, did, is did that not, how it worked no, out? It didn't, no, it didn't work sorry. out. Didn't oh work god, out. I, I don't know how you went wrong. Yeah. Did you try? Did you try maybe uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance? Well, that's well, maybe next year. But did you actually read the book, the Schrader book? I think so. Yes. Mm. It's about and like. Do you remember uh, anything of it? When we were watching Pickpocket, I realized that I'd read Schrader talking about the style of the film. Mm. 
because that was like a third of his book was talking about Bresson, but like this is a long time ago. It had a lot of pictures in it, I remember, which was useful. I think all books should have pictures in them. Indeed, they should, particularly mm -hmm. ones about film. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, like, like what seems to have happened is when Sidney Pollock got a hold of the script, he wanted to make something arty with very clear points to be made about the American involvement in Japan after the war. So everybody's a fucking archetype. You've got... <laughs> You've got Everyone's uh, served. Like, you've got Robert Mitchum, who's like you know the good American soldier. Your GI Joe types. You've got the emasculated Japanese man who was out in the jungle. You know, you've got like you've got the lovely or Oriental lady. You know, the Rose of Japan or whatever. You got the modernized uh, Oriental lady. You've got the corrupt. You've got American. the guy who stayed on, who never went yeah, home. You've got the corrupt American businessman who's like you know trying to ravage the country for all it's worth. And that and that's it. Like, and it's the it's modernizing Japan, like basically with the American context and their modernizing relationship with America, whether it's a straightforward business relationship or something corrupt and exploitative. So that's the movie that Sidney Pollock aimed for and went. Yeah, and he was into sort of making political points with his movie, and so was Robert Town at the time. So fair play. But to hear Schrader's description of what he had wanted to make, it's it's quite a different thing. But. He's like he 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 says he doesn't have too many regrets because it allowed him to start his his career, so to speak. But he said to him to him, Sidney Pollock didn't succeed at what he was trying to do, and they certainly didn't succeed in adapting the script that he had originally wrote. So to to Schrader, it's it's a failure all around. To me, I think there's lots of interesting stuff in it. I think the ending where uh, Mitchum cuts off his finger is fucking. Is a pretty cool ending, to be honest. I, I really like that. But as I said, the action is bizarrely boring. There's two other things I don't like about it. I feel like there's only about three or four different locations in the film. You never yeah, really feel like you're you in mean. Japan, except when they're walking in the street and there's a bunch of neon. Okay. Apart from that, like I, I we're mostly in uh, in the one guy's house in Oliver's house. Like I don't feel like I'm in Japan, which is a place I've mm. spent like two years and I just didn't feel like you were in Japan really particularly. So that was one problem. My other problem was like the score for me is way too jazzy. It's yes, doesn't I agree. like I would have this this is a case where I would have liked something a lot more like I genuinely would have liked the stereotypical Asian score. I mm. think it would have made more sense. I think you need to tell people where you are. You can't just have like a like a typical Sidney Pollack film score. It was scored by Dave Grusen. I don't know how to say his name, but like, it's the like thing is uh, Paul, Pollack's go-to guy. They shot most of this in Japan. And when yeah. you get that sense, it's more interesting. It's like, you know, when he goes to meet, uh, when he goes to meet uh, Ken's, yeah, the guy's bro Ken's brother. brother. Yeah, yeah. And outside, even, what, what is that? I don't even know where that is. They're outside this building. I don't know, but I, I thought that was cool. Like, it's definitely in Japan, but I don't know where it is exactly. I don't even know what it is. I think it's like a conference center or something. It is something like that. Yeah, but like that was kind of cool. I enjoyed that. But then so many of the rooms are clearly sets. I don't care if it was the 70s. Nobody's got yeah. a wall that color, you know? So, yeah. That, but then the thing is, it is, you know, the, the, the story is relatively compelling. The dialogue is 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 good here and there. But the two performances by Robert Mitchum and uh, Ken Takakura, they elevate the material a lot, I think. Because I think they're both fairly magnetic. Yeah. So, yeah, whatever. I mean, it, it, like, it, when you hear that this is a cult film, that makes sense. They're watching cults. 
Well, you know, just that it's the sort of film that a select group might have a real affection for. But it's easy know. to understand I, I, why it flopped. I don't feel like it should be a cult film. I don't feel like... Like, it seems like it was almost trying to... It was trying to be mainstream at the time, it feels like. It feels it like Pollock trying was, to be mainstream. Yeah, Pollock yeah, was yeah. trying to make something pretty simple. I saw a lot of... Um, I saw a lot of reviews saying it was complicated. I, I didn't see that. No, I didn't think it was complicated. I, th- I, I, I think it's... Pa- <laughs> It's paced differently. It's pa- like, like you know the way like oriental music is structured differently. There's a different kind of a patience to the way the plot unfolds here. But I said it before and I say it again, I don't understand what's with the slow action sequences. You know the, I'm like I'm the, probably just Pollock wasn't very good at that. Yeah, maybe, but it, it seemed also deliberate. You I mean, know? look at his other like most of his other films are people in rooms talking. The rooms talking stuff is good. I like the rooms talking stuff. I used to always think of, I I, I mostly saw Sidney Pollock acting and stuff. So like, I I guess it was like towards the end of his life. I always just thought he was an actor. And then I found out like all the stuff that he'd made. I was like, oh my God, he directed a ton of films. And did you he, he get... does he does have a lot of action. He's got a lot of stuff with action in it that I haven't watched. Like going back to the 60s, like Castle Keep, stuff like that. So, and also three, like Three Days of the Condor, I haven't seen in fairness, so. And he also produced and acted in Michael Clayton, so all is forgiven. Really, he's he's done a few, he did a few good things like that. He's dead ski, isn't he? Yeah, he died he quite a while ago now, two thousand and eight. So yeah, ah well, I mean, yeah, I probably won't be watching this again. But sure, uh, I definitely, I I was not a sleepy boy this time. I have my opinion confirmed for me. It's only okay. The other thing I wanted to say about this is that this just confirms to me that Richard Jordan was cool. He was cool as fuck, and it's a shame that he yeah. died so young. Yeah, and yeah, him yeah. and Mitchum he... getting to work again. This is like the year after Friends of Eddie Coyle, and they're playing yeah. completely different roles, completely different relationship. So do you know anything about the origins of the script? So Schrader's brother was living in Japan, right? Yeah, he was draft Leonard dodging Schrader. over in Japan. Respect. Um, but the, it, like, it's, it, teaching English at a, at a university, much like yourself. Mm-hmm. And... Um, yeah, but basically the, there was the loads of student part. There was loads of yeah, indeed. There was loads of student protests uh, that year, so he ended up spending an awful lot of time in um, Yakuza bars, Yakuza run bars, and he wrote a letter to Paul uh, Schrader about that. And Schrader went over and and visited him there, and they hatched up the idea and sold it as a pitch. And yeah, basically, so there's first of all. They got the spec money to write it, and then later were like they got a fair owl down payment, and then an agent took it over for the uh, for them guy called uh, Mark Hamelberg. Um, <laughs> Mark Hamels, yeah, indeed, cousin. Yeah. it is, yeah. And uh, he, he just basically wanted to get a an auction going for the script, and yeah, they sold it for a huge amount of money for people who had never written a script before. But people like Robert Aldrich basically said that Mark Hamelberg just did a, a great job of selling it. And then when he saw it, he felt it was a bit of a mess. He liked the story, but the script was not good, which, I mean, you can believe these guys had never written a script before. Yeah, exactly. I mean, but then Taxi Driver comes after this. And obviously, mm. uh, Paul Schrader's guy's background in film criticism. So you're like, he probably knows something about story structure and things like that. Maybe dialogue was, could have been a bit ropey. It was probably a, a fairly decent script. And the thing is about schrader is schrader so sydney pollock would have been let's say like a 60s intellectual artistic director but schrader is one of the movie brats schrader 
learned movies by loving movies. He yeah. just saw so many fucking movies. So you can believe that he would have been aiming to do a decent imitation of what Yakuza movies did, but with the American counterpart. And like I said, the idea for him was originally hatched as a commercial idea. Like he liked the idea of the film, but mainly he thought that's a film that you could sell. Take a Yakuza film and give it a Western character to give you your entry point into Japan. And he thought that could do well. So, yeah, I mean, it makes sense. He was uh, disappointed the way it, it, it turned out. So first of all, as we mentioned already, Robert Aldrich passed over it and he said it was he really regrets not making it. He said he probably it doesn't say that now. There's a quote from him saying it here, but sure, whatever. He, I mean, he's I probably mean dead he's now. So. Dead. He's been dead for a yeah, long, yeah, long yeah. time. But I mean, he, I don't know. I mean, he seems like he wouldn't have been a great match for it, to be honest, uh, if you look at his filmography. Well, we watched Dirty yeah. Dozen. They could have just done that. Should have just yeah, exactly. Dirty, just, just do the Dirty Dozen just again. Just do the Dirty Dozen again, sure. Why yeah, not? Yeah, actually, now that you mention it. But uh, yeah, he would have put Lee Marvin in the Robert Mitchum role, which would have been a very oh, different no thing. With that. Yeah, yeah, that would have he been also, good. It's, it said that they softened the character, right? Pollock wanted Harry Kilmer to be softened. Yeah, exactly. I, which I, I don't want that. I want him, no. I want him hard. Yeah, and like, as I said, I do think Mitchum is great in this. But he's a bit of a, he's more of a teddy bear. Than uh, we've seen in pr- previous Mitchum performances, I'll say. I don't, I don't care about him in this. I care about Ken. Uh, yeah. I care about Dusty. I care about Richard Jordan. Like when when uh, he dies, I genuinely was like, oh no. Oh, but bad. then when it turns out that it was a decoy death, and the real death is the is the young lady, Which and that's is also bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's very it yeah, yeah. They, and then the, and and like and and all those reveals, like the reveal of who Ken actually is and his relationship with them. Those works. Yeah, and I think that's yeah. all great. And if Schrader wrote those parts, then mucho respecto. I hope you got paid. I'm glad that you got paid a lot of money. Yeah, no, 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 he did. As I said, and uh, so, and also, you know who Pollock um, pushed for to be in the lead for a while, but who turned it down? Robert Redford. Oh yeah, but he was considered too young, right? No, Robert is considered uh, Robert. Redford considered himself too young. He, oh, yeah, yeah, he he he, uh, cut himself out of the running for it. I mean, when is this? This is nineteen seventy-four. Early seventies. Like, I mean, this is around the time he made the uh, candidate. So you know, he was making some high-quality projects. Did you know though that uh, Leonard Schrader's uh, draft dodging was also responsible for another call it friendo film? Yeah, um, Mishima. Yeah, he knew he met Mishima a few mm. times when he was over there, um, and told Paul Schrader about it, which is no no uh, spoilers for my best of the year, but that's definitely in there. Imagine meeting such a head the ball <laughs> like that. Oh, I just think that's fascinating. That like, because we, we when we were watching that film, we we're like, this guy's is this guy real? Is <laughs> he's a real person? This is crazy. And yeah, he he met well, him. Well, nowadays the like equivalent of that is that Jake. Jake Edelstein, the Tokyo Vice guy, like apparently all his stuff is bullshit. So, like you know, like I think Leonard Traders, I can I can imagine all of that being real actually, like meeting Mishima and doing all that. But apparently, the guy from Tokyo Vice, all his stuff of like hanging out with gangsters is horseshit. Why was he? Was that claiming to be true? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all. It's all oh, I didn't know that. Allegedly, he's like a journalist. Uh, he was like the first Western journalist who worked in a newspaper in Japan. Shall I break down the plot of this one a Go. little bit? Get into it. I'm going to try and do this as fast as I can, right? And I'll be calling people by their actor names for the most Fine. part. Uh, yeah, so Robert Mitchum 
he gets called by uh, George Tanner, who's a bit of he's a, a your corrupt American businessman. And he's like the Yakuza. I've been doing business with the Yakuza. They took my daughter. Can you go over and sort it out? And he's like, well, I got no friends in Japan anymore. And then uh, George Tanner says, yes, but you can go to Ken Tanaka because he'll do anything for you. We don't really know why at this point. So he heads he heads over there anyway. And he stops with uh, in with his mate, Oliver Wheat, who never went home, uh, who's just a, a, a you know, a, an intellectual over there with a collection of swords and guns who just hangs around. And, you know, that's who he is anyway. He's one of he's one of the local boys. And uh, that's who uh, Robert Mitchum is going to stay with. And then he goes over with a bodyguard appointed by George Tanner, uh, as you mentioned, played by Richard Jordan, fella called Dusty, who we immediately get to like. Anyway, Robert Mitchum goes to his old flame who um, owns a bar now and they say hi and she's got a daughter. And then we've we around this time learn the backstory of the whole business. So basically, when he was when he was over there during the war, he met and fell in love with this lady and moved in with her. But beforehand, he he helped he helped her because her kid was sick and he gave her money to so her kid could recover. And then. They're all shacked up, but all of a sudden her brother returns out of the Filipino jungle where he's been for 10 years. And she's like, he, he's so furious because she's shacked up with the enemy. So Robert Mitchum agrees to go away and never come back. But he gets some money off George Tanner and buys your woman a bar, which she names Kilmer's Tea Room. And that's that's her set up for life. So they haven't, he hasn't seen her in years. He comes back and they have their little reunion, but he says he needs to get in touch with her brother, with her brother Ken, because he needs her his help with something. And because th- this guy, he owes him a kind of a Yakuza debt because he fucked off and, and left, even though he was in love with the lady. They need to fire along and get George uh, Tanner's daughter back. So they go out to this other Yakuza house. There's actually not a bad action scene, that one. Yeah, it's with the, the hand getting chopped off. Yeah. That's not bad, that one, I, I I think. Yeah, that's certainly better. And Richard Jordan's great in that scene, actually. Just, yeah. Like, yeah, he's, he's great in the film. He's it. my favorite. Yeah, he is. He's your favorite? Yeah. Mm, nice. Even more than Ken. I mean, Ken's cool, too, when he's doing the whole uh, sword fight at the end. But I just think Richard Jordan was cool. I think, I think he was a cool guy. The revelation about Ken, his performance is perfect for that the whole way through. Like, the weight of the secret he's carrying, he just looks like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's just intensely, like, just burdened. The whole way through the film. So yeah. Anyway, they they get uh, Tanner's kids back, and then uh, Kilmer is all set to go home. Um, but then he learns that uh, every like Ken is going to be in trouble for getting back into Yakuza business, and this might mean trouble for Robert Mitchum's ex missus and her daughter. So he makes sure they they all head over to uh, Ollie Wheatley's house, and um, Kilmer goes to meet uh, Ken's brother to try and, like, you know, talk him out of the, the blood feud that he's going to do because the, the, he, his, he, what he wants to do is just go and present himself for, you know, destruction. So then there's an attempt on Kilmer's life at a bathhouse. Somebody tries to stab him and he just about recovers. And then, sure enough, soon after that, there's another attack on, on Ken and Kilmer in uh, Weedy's house. And and Dusty is stabbed to death, and Hanako is shot Damn. and killed. Damn. Oh no! It's a, that's a motherfucker of a scene, I have to say. Yeah. But and such, actually, again, but I don't that's know. I not think a it, bad action scene. I think it is. It's a lot of awkward people. 
I, I guess it's supposed to be chaotic. Maybe we're just not accustomed mm. to seeing the chaos of people like if you know, five guys with samurai swords were trying to take on like a few guys with guns, like it might be chaotic as fuck in fairness. But I don't know. It just, it doesn't, it didn't, it doesn't play as smoothly as you'd like it to. Even if it was chaos, it should be better controlled for filming purposes. Yeah. I like the, I, I like the way Oliver is going, stop, 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 please <laughs> yeah. stop. All right. It's around this time. Um, we learn that George Tanner was, is basically just up to his nuts in debt to the Yakuza has no way of paying them back. But part of his plan is going to be to sell, like he's the one who arranged um, the attempted assassination on Robert Mitchum. So Robert Mitchum is pissed. This is the first very shoddy sort of action scene for me in the film <laughs> where he breaks into Tanner's apartment and then just, <laughs> it's very weird. He just goes, Tanner, 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 and shoots and you don't see anything. Yeah. It's strange. Yeah, so that's not great. But then the next thing is that Ken is going to have to, they're, they're going to have to just, kill all the Yakuza's if uh, not ju just so that um, Robert Mitchum's missus doesn't doesn't get uh, bled out anymore. And Ken keeps trying to get Robert Mitchum to go away with the ladies, just like, just leave, just leave, just leave. And then your man's brother, well, two things we learned from your man's brother. First of all, we learned that Ken is actually Robert Mitchum's missus's husband. And that's the, the real debt that he's carrying. And then the other thing we learn is that Goro, that's um, Ken's brother, Goro has a son who's nuts deep in the Yakuza himself with a spider tattoo on the top of his head. It's a strange little plot element to include at this point. And it's kind of, it's almost one element too many, I would say. Go fuck yourself, spider. <laughs> there you go. So it is anyway. too much because I didn't like, I mean, I was paying attention, but I, I kind of went like, wait, who's this guy again? Yeah, He's yeah, your yeah, yeah. cousin? Something like that, yeah. He's your nephew? Nephew, I'd say, yeah. Anyway, they go in, and this is, this is the thing. So it's Robert Mitchum with a shotgun and another shotgun, maybe. <laughs> no, he's got a shotgun and a pistol. It's insane. They're completely different. Line. He just looks mm. mental. I've realized also, you can't have two guns that are different sizes. If I ever like steam into, into a place to shoot a bunch of people, I'm going to make sure my two guns are the same size. And one other thing. Why, when they're playing the, that gambling game do the dealers always have to be in their underpants? In your pants. Is that not like a Vegas type thing to be like that they're not stealing? I don't know, maybe. I don't know, in, Ve in Vegas I've been to Vegas and they didn't, the dealers weren't in their pants, but like you probably get searched or something, no? Maybe, yeah, but they're extremely high pants too, just under their breasts. So that's how they do it. It's like sumo. Anyway, so yeah Ken ends up killing his nephew by accident and he's about to uh, commit su uh, seppuku for his brother, but then his brother says, no, come on, stop this horseshit. And then instead, Ken chops off his finger, which is the Yakuza way, and hands it to him. Now, you see, uh, just a little commentary on that action scene. It plays out so bizarrely slowly for a, a, a sword and gunfight <laughs> that I think it, it must have been deliberate. He was, I don't think it was, I think it's a choice that Pollock made, and I just think it's a, a fucking weird choice. Ken's it's like part he wanted cool. to make it not an action scene. Ken's part is cool, like taking on like 30 guys with a sword, that's great, but Mitchum just bumbling around just makes it look stupid. I think the Ken stuff looks stupid too, because he moves, everybody's moving so slowly. I don't know, I'm on board with that. I don't think you would be, like, I think you would kind of hold people back a bit if you've got a sword and they know you're like, you know, like a total Yakuza badass. Even if they're all Yakuza themselves, they're probably a bit like reluctant to engage. 
I don't mind his sword fighting it, but it's it's everything around it that I thought was shy. But also, I don't believe that he would have you know stabbed twenty people successfully. But that's a different problem. Next thing we we see is um yeah just before Kilmer leaves Japan, he chops off his finger and gives it to Ken, and that he tells him to forgive uh, his misses and he's gonna go back to uh, the states. And uh, I quite liked the ending actually. I thought I, I thought that was a pretty cool ending. Cultural appropriation, much? Gonna be uh, you don't off your finger. I don't. White think man's got no business not, yeah, doing that's not that. For you. That's not for you, Robert Mitchum. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I I feel like I've seen that. If, if I I've seen it in so many things that came afterwards. That type of thing of like that. Like now I'm taking on Japanese culture type thing. It's like Last culture, Samurai man. type thing, stuff like that. But to be fair, this is like this is probably the earliest version of it that I could think of. So fair play to this film. I can't judge it by stuff that's come afterwards. That's unfair. Did I ever tell you about the greatest cover of a movie magazine ever? No. Is it in the Last Samurai episode, uh, issue <laughs> of Empire Magazine and Tom Cruise is on the front of his all his samurai gear. And in a move that must have gotten an, an editor fired, <laughs> uh, the big splash cover writing reads, there are no chinks in the last samurai's armor. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's incredible. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and like the thing is, there's no way they were going for a racist play on words that literally just got by an editor because, That's you know, the oh expression chink in the armor. Yeah, terrible. Anyway, when I say it, just so people know, I'm, of course, referring to Chink in the Armor being a flaw, not the racial epitaph. But they're going to clip that out if Epithet. they want to destroy me. Epithet. Sorry, what did I say? Epitaph. That's what goes on someone's grave. Epitaph. Epithet. I've Epithet. I've been saying that wrong for years. <laughs> yeah, I know. I have, I've never picked I've never corrected you on it until now. Well, have I said it wrong here as well? Yeah, definitely. Oh, no, Andy. <laughs> Come on, you're an English teacher. What the hell? Isn't this against your <laughs> you, the, the the oath that you swore? No. I do not. I'll chop my pinky off. Right. Anyway, there's not much interesting about anybody in this film except for the guy who played um, uh, Tanner. Do you want to hear about him? Yeah, but also Richard Jordan. And we never mentioned before, he's the grandson of uh, Learned Hand. I don't think we mentioned that. Who's Learned Hand? Learned Hand is like one of the most important legal figures in U.S. history. Richard Jordan comes from like massive privilege. But oh, like, I've heard of this guy actually. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know much. I read a bit about Learned Learned Hand, but like he's he was a judge and like a legal philosopher. Yeah, no. I've where did I hear? I think I heard about the. I think I think this guy featured heavily in an episode of The Rest Is History. Actually, can't remember. Ah yes, it was about McCarthyism. Mm. He did. He did a lot of writing about Mac McCarthyism that was very yeah. um, influential at the time. Yeah, Richard mm. Jordan was his grandson. Fascinating, and he looks like the bad guy from um, uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. He looks huh. like a bad guy just in general. He's uh, got bad guy you... vibes. Even play like even playing Dusty, he's got like a I don't know. You get a sense that he's sleazy. Ah, uh, and you know what? I liked him falling in love with uh, Hanako and uh, yeah, and all of that stuff. I mm. thought that was yeah, he's just kind of sweet. Yeah. Um. So that was it, yeah. That, tell that was me real... about uh, who was the guy that you said was interesting? Brian Keith. Well, just this. In, so this guy. I mean, you know, he, the normal stuff. He would like <laughs> the normal stuff for an actor that old. <laughs> he had an interesting life. Nice. He went to he he went to war and um like received a heap of medals. He was a, a tail gunner 
in a in a bomber in, in Pacific, which like here's the thing is um that new series is not going to do it justice. I've seen the trailer; it just looks like it's trying to be Band of Brothers, but yeah. it doesn't. It, but the thing is, being a like a gunner in one of those planes, terrifying, terrifying. I I would say more terrifying than being on the ground. Quite frankly, it, it like the it's just I've because I've read some eyewitness accounts of the sort of stuff that like the whole plane overheating, everything str- like stripped out just so that you could fit extra bombs in all the time. So everybody, oh, it sounds terrifying up above them. But anyway, I digress. Then he came back, became an actor, became a film star, did pretty well for himself all the while. His career sort of wound down. He, he was married a couple of times. He had he had a, a couple of children. He adopted some children. And then on June 24, 1997, at the age of 75, Keith died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound in his home in Malibu, California. So he suffered from emphysema and lung cancer during the latter part of his life, despite having quit smoking 10 years earlier. And this was what people reckoned. And he also had financial troubles and had suffered from depression. And it also occurred just two months after the death of his daughter, Daisy, who had also died by suicide. But then Maureen O'Hara stated in an interview that she did not believe he committed suicide because she said he had a large gun collection and he enjoyed cleaning them and showing them off. And she believed he was just cleaning his gun and it went off because she had visited him very recently beforehand and he was grand. And that she said he would have never done it due to due to his Catholic <laughs> yeah. beliefs. I think she might. I, I don't. I don't think she's onto something there. I think she might be misleading herself a bit. Well, the reason I brought it up is that's a fairly wild thing to just say in public, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but she. I mean, how old is she, how was she at that point? Like eighty or something. I've been. I, yeah, yeah. She would she have was, been old. She was born in nineteen twenty. So okay, she was like in her late seventies. Yeah, she was so, older than him. I've been doing deep dives on um, celebrities of a certain epoch saying wild shit before the internet <laughs> existed. Like I've read so much of the wacky shit Jane Fonda was uh, like Jane Fonda quotes over the years. Have you ever seen that Mitchell and Webb sketch about the uh, assassination of Princess Diana? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when yeah. they go, oh no, she'll probably just say something, va- uh, say something stupid about something that actually matters. Like that's Jane Fonda's whole existence is <laughs> <laughs> just shit like that. Anyway, um, yeah, that's all for uh, the Yakuza. We've done now. We've seen the Yakuza. It's gone. But the, the Yakuza wasn't the only thing we watched this week now, was oh, no. it? No, we got to get the authentic experience made by a Japanese person who's made multiple Yakuza films. And that is Takeshi I- Kitano, who made Sonatine. Yeah, if this is what regular Yakuza films are like, I don't know. I'll be a monkey's uncle. This is a <laughs> this is this is a wild movie, isn't it? Have you seen many of his other films? Because I this is just ex- Zatwashi. I've seen Zatwashi. Oh, okay. I've seen. I've. I think I mentioned last week. I've seen Hanabi. I've seen Brother, which was his one trip to the U.S. It's got it's got Omar yeah. Epps in it. I think I've I've seen Boiling Point. I've seen a, I've seen a few of his films, so I knew exactly what to expect, and it was this. I knew that it was going to be pretty slow-paced. I knew that it was going to be quite introspective and existential. I knew there was going to be violence, but heavily stylized. Like, I mean, a lot of what he does is he he has moments of violence where he doesn't have any expression on his face. 
Yeah. He's, he shoots people. It's cool. It's really cool. It's like a cool I, way I, to do I it. quite enjoyed the movie, I have to say. I, yeah, I, I quite I, enjoyed it. Yeah. But, but like two thirds of the film is just people dicking about on a beach. That's my Pretend, favorite stuff. Yeah, I know. And that, but that's what he does. Like, I mean, we've, we talked about him before way back in like episode three because he started out. We'll talk, I'll talk about him later. But I mean, he hmm. started out doing comedy. That was his whole thing. Then he was a game show host. And then he started making gangster films. And this has like elements of all of like all of his skills and everything he's done throughout his life are all in this film. I mean, but a large part of about, this are basically sorry. a game show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like the mad part about this actually being a gangster film is it doesn't need to be a gangster film no. at all. It's it's I don't know why it is one. The plot does not matter even a tiny bit. They, it creates something with there's something in the mood that's kind of w worth telling. Like, I don't know what the film is trying to say, but it, the way it says it is very enjoyable. There's one scene in it, one little sequence where the the two boys who's I don't know, we or their name. We don't know. One of them is reading a book and the other one has this little doll <laughs> and he's there going, oh, I love you. And it, like, <laughs> and it's so kind of real. And it made me laugh like quite yeah, a bit, yeah, yeah. Uh, and just for how silly it was. And I don't know, was I laughing because there was good performances and the boys were actually acting silly, or maybe I was just laughing because I was like, I can't believe this is in this movie. This is so strange. It's a very strange movie, but I, I and like I didn't, I, I think I didn't quite get what it was until they arrived to the beach house, and then it fully just dives into that just weird nothing happening kind of <laughs> mood but it's some it's it's really nice to be there or something and like he almost has disdain for the yakuza stuff you know this the the when they first arrived to that small town and then they're in the bar and all of a sudden these guys start shooting <laughs> and then they just start shooting back nobody everybody's completely deadpan it's like yeah yeah ridiculous what's the point of that i'd love to see an analysis by somebody who knows what the fuck this is because i, I couldn't figure I, it out i think it's very japanese i think a lot, like a lot of it is related to that i think you have to be in the mood for this type of film and you need to know what to expect or you need to be okay with it because anyone who's looking for like a realistic insight into you know how like a Yakuza Syndicate works, you're going to be sorely disappointed because it's... Yeah, watch Battles with Honor. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's, plenty of other, there's plenty of other options. There's like a million things. This is just another typical... Especially, I think there's a big thing here is like they're going from Tokyo, they're going to from the big town to, you know, they f they're flying out to like... Okinawa is like... Is, is about as... Yeah, I mean, it's like about as opposite as as, as you can get in terms of like it's a slow pace of life it's, yeah you feel it's that like completely different place and uh yeah it's, it's kind of exploring i mean you've got this main character who wants to quit he's like samuel L. jackson and pulp fiction like he's had enough he's reached the end of his uh his time being a gangster and he's like fuck everything it's so strange because it's like there's certain elements of it that like they work because they're well directed and it's enjoyable but i don't know why they're in there like, why is the fisherman guy an assassin? I don't know. It's very strange. But I think a lot of it is basically improvised. It seems that way that the script is. Well, like, he said, like, I mean, t talking about it, he said that the idea was to have like four main scenes, which is Yakuza go to Okinawa, Yakuza 
arrive in Okinawa. So like have to go, the things that uh, that lead up to them having to go there, arriving mm-hmm. there, the big machine gun shootout at the end, and then the main character killing himself. Like those were the four parts that <laughs> that had to be in the structure of it. And so he basically like kind of improvised and filmed a load of other stuff around that. I'm looking forward to hearing more about this guy because he just seems cracked. Yeah, like I said, we talked about him before in the Battle Royale episodes. Mm, yeah, yeah, he plays. He's, the, he's, the he's a very interested. He's a very interesting guy. We, I've mentioned some things about him before, so we'll see. But all right, I'll fire through the plot. Murakawa, that's uh, Takeshi Kitano's character, a Tokyo-based yakuza enforcer, has grown tired tired of gangster life. He's sent by his boss to Okinawa, supposedly to mediate a dispute between their allies, the Nakamatsu and Anan clans. Oh, Mur- just wondering on your travels. Have you, do you know what the title it means? Sonatine, it's, um, it's like a Sonata reference. Okay, fair enough. Continue. It's, it's, uh, it's a, from the musical term Sonatina, which is a small Sonata. Okay. Kitano said that when learning the piano, when the learner gets to Sonatinas, they have to decide where they want to go, whether it's to classical jazz or popular music, marking the point of crucial decision-making, which refers to the character Murakawa in the film, apparently. Mm. Uh, so yeah, so Murakawa has been sent to Okinawa. He's going to be sent to, uh, to Okinawa to mediate a dispute between two clans. Murakawa openly suspects the assignment is an attempt to have him removed, and he beats up one of his colleagues, smashes his face in in, uh, in uh, the toilet of a restaurant. In the toilet, yeah. Friend. The it's other thing funny, that yeah. we see him do early on is like there's a guy who he's lent money to who got... I never it's understood that. It's so films funny, when, but disturbing. When, when someone knows that the guy is like a Yakuza, he's like a gangster and is and he's like, fuck mental. Off. He's like, fuck yeah. you. I'm not going to give you money. I'm not a Yakuza. I don't play by your rules. So they tie him up and put him on a crane and then lure him into the sea and he drowns. And then they walk and away and they're like, okay. So we know they're It's bad funny guys. the first time and then it's disturbing the second time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they dunk him for two minutes and he's fine. And then three minutes, more than three minutes, he's not fine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so after he beats up his colleague Takahashi, he ends up going to Okinawa with his men, and he finds that the dispute is insignificant. The group's temporary headquarters is bombed, and his men are ambushed in a bar, leaving several of them dead. I'll so just a- state again, that scene in the bar, with the, like, yeah, that, that's, that's the moment where you just, like, if, you have a, if you've been confused up to this point, then you go, oh, right, no, this is, they're taking the piss a bit here, this is... It's heavily, heavily stylized. It's so silly, but very funny. Like, you know, because he's the guy. There's like three guys who've come in and got her talking about what they're going to order. And then it just bursts into gunfire. That is very funny. And then (laughs) these guys just start shooting. And with the exact same face, Kitano just starts bum, 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 bum. It's very funny. It's because no one ever breaks in these scenes. No one reacts to getting shot, particularly. And no one. Like, no one shows any fear or any reaction to anything, mm. which is, is good fun. <laughs> the other uh, thing that happens is, like, apart from they throw, like, a, like a hand grenade into, the, into one of the guy's uh, offices, which doesn't go off. But then there's, like, you know, their, their own office, their own headquarters gets bombed. And you see, like, a couple of the guys have died. But no one gives a fuck. There's also the scene near the start where they're lining up all the guys that they're going to take with them. And one of them, there's like older guys who are super hard. And then there's the young guys. And he says to them, like, you're a kid. And the kid just like pulls out a knife and stuff. (laughs) He's clearly a comedy. 
at that point because later on they're in a car and he offers them something to eat and he's like, no, my stomach still hurts from where you stabbed me. Yeah, that's so funny. It's very clear that, it's, uh, you know, like all the guys that they talk to when they uh, like reach the island, there's like mm-hmm. a guy who's like doing drugs in the back of a bus and like all the guys who are like already there are so clearly these, yeah, they're from a very rural place. They're very different, but it's, it's funny. There's funny stuff going on. You know, it made me laugh a lot um, during it, yeah. Fleeing to the seaside, the survivors take refuge in a remote beach house belonging to a brother of one of the Nakamatsu members and decide to wait for the trouble to blow over. I didn't even really catch why they were going to that remote beach house. They, I, it just seemed like they just went there something? to dick around. Yeah, supposedly to hide out, but just yeah, to but have it's mostly to dick around. Time, salt life. <laughs> Dig hole, dig holes, get drunk. Yeah, trapping, trap, doing traps for each other. While spending time at the beach, the group engages in childish games and pranks and begins to enjoy themselves. What about the one where they like they play that that one little game where they're like batting, bashing the ground that to make the fantastic that to make is... the little like wrestling characters move, and then they do it for real. They do it in real life. It's the best part of the movie. Uh, yeah. I, I think that, well, first of all, that whole just part where they're at the beach house, just and the, like it is. And they're just chilling. They're having gr- they're just great, chilling. a gay old time. It is. It's, it's, I can't explain. Like, I'm not exaggerating. I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like it in a movie, that whole sequence where they're just, there, there are, and here's what I mean by that. The events that surround that sequence are the sorts of events that we expect to drive a plot. And they drive the plot as far as that beach house. And then the plot just takes a break for about 25 minutes. <laughs> but you um, still have and, like, but there's still like, you're still wondering what's going on though. So, I mean, there's still like a the threat of the, of the outside world is there of, you know, like. I do, but I do, I, I don't, I don't think, I, I don't think it is in, well, for me it isn't anyway, because the gangster stuff seems so clearly stylized whereas all the stuff at the beach house is so naturalistic and real kind of yeah so it, i i don't know it's like they're two different movies not in a not in a jarring way or anything yeah. like that i i honestly i gave this four stars on letterbox but like if i was just talking about that middle part of the movie i'd probably go five um because <laughs> I, I just i just thought it was just so pleasant to watch it was like a, a nice album yeah, you should probably check out some more of his films then because they I are, will. They do they do have this tone. That's like it's not unusual for him. So anyway, they're playing the games, uh, the pranks and games. However, the games frequently have a violent undertone. When two of his men alternate shooting at a beer can on each other's head, Murakawa turns it into a game of Russian roulette. Putting the gun to his head, he pulls the trigger on the last chamber, which is only then revealed to be empty. I feel like I've seen that done in a bunch of films or mm. TV series since then. The person like going, oh no, I I palmed all the bullets. There was nothing in the chamber. But still, good fun. Murakawa later dreams of the Russian roulette game, although in his dream the revolver is loaded and he dies. When he wakes up, he walks down to the shore and witnesses a man attempt to rape a woman. Murakawa shoots the man, but to his companions he claims the woman shot him. She then joins Murakawa and the gang at the beach house and comes frequently to visit, spending time with Murakawa. Gets the lads out. She does, later on. Later, an assassin disguised as a fisherman kills the boss of the Nakamatsu clan and one of Murakawa's men. Learning that Takahashi is arriving in Okinawa, Murakawa and two of his surviving men visit his hotel. Unable to find him at first, they unexpectedly run into Takahashi and the assassin in the elevator, which results in a shootout, killing the assassin and Murakawa's men. 
which is a Monty Python kind of a shootout. It's uh, but yeah, there's still yeah. a lot of tension to it. You know that something's going to happen, and then when the guys come in and into the into the lift, and he just goes Takahashi, and then we do the whole emotionless uh, gunning people down. Murakawa learns from interrogating Takahashi that their boss had intended all along to partner with the Anan clan and had sent Murakawa on a suicide mission to take over his turf. He also learns that the boss will be meeting with the Anan that night in a hotel. Takahashi is killed and Murakawa sets off with the only survivor of the group, a member of the Nakamatsu clan, who helps him by rigging the electricity in the hotel to go off at a certain time. Murakawa tells his lady friend that he might come back. But later that night, Murakawa goes into the hotel and slaughters both clans with an assault rifle. The next morning, while the woman continues to wait for him, Murakawa is dropped off nearby. He gets into the woman's car alone and commits suicide by shooting himself in the head, just like he dreamed. Yeah. Why does he end it like that? He's like, fuck it all anyway. Yeah. Why? What's that about? He's, I don't know, middle-aged, <laughs> depression. <laughs> he's, he's done a, he'd done everything. I, d- I think he did it because it's really cool. Like, it's like maybe. a cool shot of him holding the gun. Maybe, yeah, yeah. Maybe it's just pure um, postmodern aesthetics kind of thing. But uh, If you go to the Son- the Sonatine Wikipedia page, there's graffiti in Barcelona of him. I saw that. With the gun, with the gun to his head. In San, San Adria de Besos. San Adria, yeah. I'm not going out there Fair to see play. that, though. That place surely it's shit not hole. there. Surely, <laughs> I bet that's not there anymore. I bet no, it's probably gone. not. It's probably in 1993 or something. This film bombed horribly. In, Did it? In, yeah, the uh, Japanese box office for this was very, very, very poor. It did really, really badly, but then uh, it was screened at Cannes in the Uncertain Regard mm. uh, category, and it, which culminated in French writer Jean-Pierre Dionnet showing it to Alan Delon and telling oh, him yeah. that... Oh, uh, yeah, and he hated it. Telling him that Kitano was a big fan of the samurai, but Alain Delon saw it and was, or watched the film and was basically like, What is this shit? He has only uh, three facial expression. Le shit. But uh, Jean Pierre Dionne bought the rights to this and a few other Kitano films and put them out in France to much acclaim. Yeah. The score th- to this film also, I was going to mention this, uh, it's by the, the great like Joe. This. It's by the great Joe Hisaishi, who's throughout his career, he mainly has worked with Miyazaki on his animated films and then on these Kitano gangster films. The thing is, so I remember, so early on uh, we watched um, Battle Royale and I comment on, commented on some of the dialogue just saying it was just ridiculous. And you said to, you said to not underestimate just how sincere Jap- J- Japanese culture is. And looking at this, maybe that's the reason it didn't do too well because this is not sincere. <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty mental. It's practically like it, I'll tell you what. Somebody, I guarantee you this. Somebody who doesn't watch films as regularly as us, this could piss them off. This movie. This is like an F cinema score type film. Do you think? Yeah, I think people people would go into this. I could see people walking out of this going like, Yeah, hundred percent. Going, what the that. fuck was that? Yeah, I yeah, would yeah. definitely not recommend it to anyone. I despise that experience because we're in. We're enjoying the fact that the director is fucking with us. Yeah, he's like that, that's that's like the buzz of the film. Like, is the, the fact that it's just it's supposed to be you're supposed to be going wait what? Like, that's kind of the the thing. He's the only cast member that I wanted to talk about. Cast member, director, yeah. writer, wrote the theme tune, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. 
Takeshi Kitano. He's we've talked about him before. He started out as an elevator operator, elevator operator in a strip club in uh, in Tokyo before he became an apprentice to the house MC there. There's a film from 2021 about this period in his life adapted from his memoir. It's called Asakusa Kid. That's like the name of the neighborhood where I think the guy that he studied under is from. And mm. it looks it looks decent. It's on Netflix. It's like a like a period Mrs. Maisel, like Japanese Mrs. Maisel type thing, set in like the nineteen whatever. Oh, his, 70s, his autobiography. Yeah, autobi based, based on his film. based on his own memoir. Yeah, yeah. I was looking at that. Yeah, yesterday I was actually I've checked out. It looks solid. Pretty much the Wikipedia Wikipedia entries for all his movies. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I, yeah. Th that one stu stood out to me. That looks interesting. Later, Kitano started uh, a manzai double act with another guy called Kiyoshi Kaneko. We talked about this last time. He called them; they called themselves the two beats: beat Takeshi and beat Kiyoshi. Ah, uh, this Kiyoshi, is the thing you sent me today. Yeah, yeah. I sent you like a little clip of their manzai. I don't know if you saw it, but like I, I did, think yeah, it holds I up. It. Mm, it's uh, funny. Kiyoshi was a straight man, and Takeshi was whatever the opposite of that is. But yeah, I think it holds up. I think it's pretty good. I was thinking we should start our own manzai double act. You think? Yeah, I'll, I could be beat Andy, and you can be beat guys off under the Queensboro Bridge for 15 bucks a pop. <laughs> that's, that's just for you. That's not for anyone. <laughs> nice. The big quote last time when we talked about this, the Manzai double act was that the targets of their jokes were often the socially vulnerable, including the elderly, the handicapped, the poor children, women, the ugly, and the I stupid. remember you reading this before. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was very controversial, but they were super successful in the 70s and 80s until Beat Takeshi decided to go solo. He went into TV and film. He hosted Takeshi's Castle, which is probably still airing on some cable channel in the UK. That used to be on all the time when I was younger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen um, a lot of Takeshi's Castle in my yeah. time. And also, I mean, that's quite similar to Sonatine. I feel like there's sequences of Sonatine that were just mm. games from that. He yeah. later went on to write and direct and star in a bunch of gangster films like Boiling Point, Annabi, and Brother. Uh, he's also done a lot of samurai period films, the most recent of which was released this year. It's called Kubi. It yeah. was about the Honoji incident in 1582, which is about uh, there was when a, a powerful feudal lord was assassinated when, when trying to unify Japan. But he looks like, he's almost like a Woody Allen figure, but I don't know, you know, but normal, w w way cooler. <laughs> yeah. Like if he's just, yeah, yeah, I'm going to write and direct all these movies and I'm going to star in them all too. And uh, go jump in a lake if, if you've got any problem, I suppose. I, he's I think like, it's I mean, what what's the, because he's, he's clearly got like a big sort of improv and, mm. and sketch comedy background. Yes. But then he's super, super serious in a lot of films. But he's also, and he's also super serious in a lot of films. But, but to be funny, he's like playing it really straight. But it's clear that it's, you know, supposed to be funny. I don't know who's the equivalent of that, like Michael Keaton or someone I'm trying to think. It's like someone who's like a comedian who can do like serious drama, like Robin Williams is, or is, something. Is it, Keaton is a pretty good shout, I would actually say. Something like that. Yeah. Basically, it wasn't Woody Allen. That's what I wanted to say. Fuck that. Mm. So that's it. Sonatine, solid film. I enjoyed it. I'm Me happy too. that I'm happy that I watched it. It's also only 90 minutes, so much respect to uh, everyone involved in the production. Yeah, I, I would kind of love. You know, we were saying that this film would vex certain people. 
I'd love to ha- make a bunch of people who this would definitely vex watch this film because I'd love to hear reactions about it. That would be funny to me. Just I, go. I, just, I mean, literally, all you need to do is just go on to like Letterboxd or something or IMDb and just have a look at some of the reviews. Are there people giving out? There will be. I haven't checked, but I guarantee there's people just going like, what is this shit? Sweet. All right, cool. What are you bringing to the toss table, motherfucker? Well, I think I put this up for a toss before, or it might have been a companion film that lost, but my pick for this week is Jake Kasdan's directorial debut, Zero Effect. I do respect for recent a friend of the show, Ryan O'Neill. Yeah, that's right. Ryan O'Neill became a friend of the show. Is Jake Kasdan anything to Lawrence? Yeah, to his son. Isn't that nice? I think Jake, like Jake Kasdan did... Um, uh, Mumford was that another of his films? I'm trying to think of the other. What were the other Jake Kasdan films? He wrote Bad Teacher. No, he. Oh no, he. So he directed Bad Teacher, Sex Tape, uh, the two Jumanji films. Hmm. Oh, so I guess it was Lawrence Kasdan who did Mumford, right? But yeah, he's his uh, Jake's his son. Okay, well, um, I I've never heard of this film. Have you? I heard it's decent. It it's it's his debut from 1998. It's got Ben Stiller and. Uh, Bill Pullman as well, and it's I think it's based on it's based on like an Arthur Conan Doyle thing. It's a uh, yeah, it's based um, on Scandal in Bohemia. Yeah, it's like a sort of I feel like I, I tonally I imagine it's something like Brick maybe. Well, I've gone for what would be the second movie I've seen by um, this fella Gia Zhangke. The only one of of his I've seen before was A Touch of Sin, but that absolutely blew me away. So I'm gonna go for his 2018 film. Ash is purest white. Mm. Anyway, is it my turn to toss? I think so, if you've got a coin. I believe so, yeah. Hold on. Okay, your options are 50 and Cervantes. 50. Let's go 50 again. Come on, 50. Or Cervantes. Let's see what happens. 50 has won. Uh, yay, I guess. Well, you would have won. Um, I had good... See, I'm kind of disappointed I was gonna. I'll, I'll, let, let's just play through the game, like pretending that it was for real, and see what you see what you think. Your three options were going to be city, countryside, or further afield. Wow. What um, would you have chosen of those three options? I would have probably gone countryside. Ah, damn. So city was city of life and death. Ooh. I went all Chinese things. Countryside was mountain patrol. By the same director as the City of Life and Death, and mm. further afield was Year of the Dragon, <laughs> like Chinatown. Ah, we were gonna get Year New of York. the Dragon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll it was all Chinesey stuff. What about the other way? All right. Well, do you want to hear what we've lined up with Zero Effect? Mm-hmm. Based on the fact that it's based on a Sherlock Holmes story, I decided to go for another Sherlock Holmes story, namely what people many people call Billy Wilder's last great film, mm. The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes from 1970. Oh, very nice. Who's in it? Robert Stevens, Genevieve Page, a bunch of superstars, Christopher Lee. Yeah, Christopher Lee is actually oh, nice. famous. There you go. <laughs> you're, you're talking down some of those people. Colin Blakely, of, all the okay, stars yeah, are here. Um, he's good. Do you know who Colin Blakely is? Yeah, he was in uh, that Sherlock Holmes film. In 1970. Yeah, yeah. Private Life of Sherlock Holmes. That's the one. That's well, what I was talking about. He was also in that uh, film about the boy who has sex with horses. What's that uh, called? Equus. Equus, yeah. Respect. Indeed. He doesn't have sex with horses. He likes the horses to watch him having sex or something. His abba is. Wow. Something we like won't that, be watching yeah. that. 
this week, but maybe next week. Maybe next week. Um, but uh, next week, of course, cost picking will be arranged by enemy of the show, John Spillane. That's very exciting. We don't need to. We don't need to record that at the same time. It can be done whenever. Uh, I don't Unless know, you want figure... him to just join in at the end, which would be quite funny too. I think that would be fun. We could pretend like there was a knock on the door or something. Oh, okay. oh, oh. Some bullshit like that. Um, and also, next year, I, next week, I suppose, we'll be doing our top tens or whatever for the year. No? New I think year. we did it until, we went until into January, I'd say. Okie doke. Give you some time well, to catch up on stuff, like over the Christmas period, maybe you'll get the chance to watch like all the top films of the year and like i mean because we've got the chance to yeah because we'll talk about like our own like we'll talk about the stuff that we've watched because of the podcast but then i'm still trying to like i need to watch like the holdovers and whatever yeah i have i have a a copy of that ready to go actually but uh okay don't be doing any top tens with any of the show john spillan though Wait, wait until i'm back all right you heard that's a bit of admin for you there folks is what you just heard all right, well, until next week when we'll be watching Zero Effect. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> some Sherlock Holmes shite. Some Sherlock Holmes. This is... Uh, Billy Wilder. Weeks like this are great on the podcast. And what other scenario would you be watching these films? None. There's no, no other. This if I was the, on a, a beach house in Okinawa and I had, there was, I don't know some guys playing games i'd probably go to the other room and watch zero effect i love the traps in that on that beach oh that's funny <laughs> i heard Maybe you love traps yeah hey there we are i don't even know what that means all Good. right i have been up since about four in the morning so i'm going Good. to fuck to bed i love you andy i love you too bye bye